0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 18, and we're going to be starting in verse 9. Uh, so just to catch everybody up, last week we finished our verse-by-verse study through 1 Peter. We called that series Refined. Uh, if you caught any of it, you probably realized why the name uh, really matches the book, um, and those will uh, be up, available on the website and podcast soon. So if you missed any, you can catch up. Uh, this week, we're going to jump back into a sermon series called Parables. We've done this in the past, and uh, we just kind of keep going through the Scriptures And what we're doing is we're looking at the stories that Jesus told in order to teach and illustrate to his followers the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Uh, The parables of Jesus are a source of comfort and conviction to those who trust him, uh, but they are often a source of confusion to those who don't. This is because these parables and all of the word of God, for that matter, uh, are only able to be understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. Humans Just they cannot understand the inside-out and upside-down nature of the kingdom of God uh, or salvation apart from the Spirit. Uh, The first shall be last and the last shall be first is an utterly confusing statement if not viewed through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And the faith to believe in Him is a gift the Spirit of God gives. This parable, the one we're going to work through tonight, is one of my favorites because it gets right down to the heart of what the whole Bible is about. Uh, So what I'm hoping is that we can approach this together in humility, trusting God to reveal his truth by the power of his spirit. Okay, so we're in Luke 18, and we're going to start in verse 9, and we will be going to verse 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and uh, the publican or the tax collector. And he also told this parable, that's Jesus, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Praise God for his word. So first of all, I mean, what pops out first is the striking contrast between these two prayers, right? So the Pharisee believes he is justified before God by what he does and doesn't do, right? Let's look at this real close. Uh, first of all, I think it's interesting that it says the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Uh, first of all, we need to understand the kind of prayer that this Pharisee tries to approach God with is probably not even going to get to his ears. Um, Psalm 100 says that you've got to enter God's gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, the only praise this guy had on his lips was for himself. And so this prayer was probably just bouncing off the ceiling and coming back and hitting this guy. I don't even know that God, uh, if God heard this, he might have just smote him. I don't know, because this, this is a real bad prayer. Uh, so obviously he thinks he's justified by what he does do and doesn't do. So first of all, he says, I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> That's a great start to a humble prayer, isn't it? I'm not like other people. I thank you that uh, I'm not like them. I'm not like swindlers. I don't cheat. I'm not unjust. I'm not like adulterers better than them. Or even like this tax collector back here. And so that's the things he doesn't do. I'm not like that. I don't do those things. And so God, thank you for that. Right? So he wraps his just pugnant and, and really disgusting pride uh, in, in the, the, the shroud of, as if he's grateful to God that God is helping him with these things. But none of that uh, seems to be actually true. He's, he, it's obviously a farce. Uh, verse 12, he starts to talk about the things he does do. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Uh, so clearly, he's, he's coming to God. And he's real happy. He's stoked. He's feeling real good about himself and everything around him, and all of that is based upon the fact that he doesn't do some bad things, and he does do some good things, and he feels real confident. How do we know he feels confident? Well, the, Jesus also just in proximity to the front of the the place where they're praying. He says that the tax collector couldn't even come close, but this Pharisee, he he ran right up to the front. Right? He's standing shoulders back, just so happy with himself, very confident that all of these good things he's doing and bad things he's avoiding have him standing uh, in justification and righteousness before the Lord. Uh, That obviously is not the case. Uh, what is, so that's, that's the way the Pharisee thinks. How does the tax collector believe? Well, he believes he has one shot, and that's God's mercy. How do we see this? Uh, Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, so he knows he's not worthy. He understands he's not worthy to be standing in the front up close to that altar. He knows, he knows there's something about him that there should be distance between him and God as a result of his sin. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. It says, but he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And before we go any farther, friends, I just want to point out to you that this, what, what does then Jesus say? Jesus says, this man went to his house justified. Why? What is it about that? Is it, is it see, what, a, what, what religion and tradition would do is say, okay, Jesus really liked that he beat his breast and he really liked the specific words that he said. So if I if I do that and I say this, then then God will be happy. No, man, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is painting a picture of somebody that really, really understands something. What is the beating of the breast? That's most commentators say that the guy understands there's wickedness in his own heart. He is so aware of his brokenness and his sin. This is not a show. See the guy in the front is a show. The guy in the front, he's talking to himself. The guy in the front, he's up there so that everyone can see him praying. And he's probably talking loud enough for everyone to hear. This guy won't even come to the front. He won't even lift his eyes. This is not a show. He's not coming there to try to show anybody anything. He is broken to the degree that he, involuntarily, the only prayer he can utter is, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And my question to you, dear friend, before we go any farther... Have you had a moment like that? Your physical reaction doesn't have to be the same. Your words don't have to be the same. But have you come to the same realization the tax collector did? Have you glimpsed in reality the degree of your brokenness? Or are you tempted because you're scared that maybe God isn't as merciful as the Bible says He is? Or if you've been betrayed in the past when you've made yourself vulnerable? Do you still hide behind the masks? And do you still, when you come to God, maybe repent of a few things, but then also mention a few other things, some good things that you think offset it? Or have you really ever got to the point where you see the striking contrast between you, your heart, and the perfect sinless Savior that died in your place? Maybe you haven't stood in a temple and beat your chest, but have you really come to the place of understanding where you stand before God aside from Christ? Because only in that understanding will you truly cry out for mercy. If, if you don't come to that understanding, your cry for mercy will be a farce. You'll just hear that someone else cried for mercy. You'll hear that someone else asked for this or that and then, and then duplicate that in a religious duty. The point is true conversion, true repentance only comes after a deep and real understanding of your spiritual bankruptcy, this tax collector got it. He understood. He had one shot, one hope, only one chance, and it was God's mercy alone. This is the very foundation of our faith, understanding that there's need for repentance, not in a religious way, all the way down to the heart. Jesus said, that guy, that got that and cried out for mercy. He spoke less words and they were less eloquent, weren't they? That man, that man right there, that one, have mercy on me, the sinner. He left that day justified before God. That contrast right there, this parable, dear friends. If you would run your thoughts, the contemplations of your heart, the way you approach God through the grid of what Jesus teaches us here all the time, it will have a helpful and corrective nature because we are constantly, constantly tempted to go at this thing the way the tax collector does. And sometimes we, won't, we don't say it out loud. Sometimes we're just dealing with the inner monologue of dealing with shame and guilt and knowing that maybe I'm not even going all the way as far as to do bad things, but I'm, I'm thinking things that are contrary to God's word and Many times, I know I've done this in my life. Either the devil's accusing me or I'm accusing myself or I just know I just did something dumb. The justification that comes to my mind is I'll start thinking of some other good things I did. And I'll try to, I'll try to throw those at that, at that oncoming beast that wants to devour me, right? Like I'm gonna, I got these darts of my good works and I'm trying to stop him. And, and sometimes it tricks my conscience, sometimes it works. But the reality is uh, it's absolutely an abomination to God because none of our good works, either lack of doing bad things or the presence of doing good things is going to uh, have us standing justified. Those things do not work. Um, This parable shows us the paramount importance of preaching the whole gospel, which consists of some really bad news and then some really good news. If we don't have both of those in place, we will end up Either where the tax collector is, or somebody that's not mentioned in the story here, which is somebody that never comes in to pray because they, they don't believe they could come in and ask for God's mercy, right? We got another good news and we got another bad news. The bad news is, like this tax collector understands, every single one of us are where he's at. Every single one of us. Who, what's the biggest tragedy of this story? That, that the, the Pharisee doesn't get, that the tax collector he's talking smack about that he's in the exact same boat as him. And actually, according to the way Jesus dealt with uh, sins of self-righteousness, he's probably in a worse boat. Do you understand that? This guy tithes. This guy fasts twice a week. This guy doesn't have any sexual sin in his life, according to him. Right? He's not cheating anybody. His scales are always right. And yet, he'll leave that day not justified before God. He's in more trouble than the tax collector that understands he's broken and in need of Jesus. We have to know the bad news. Every one of us are sinful and imperfect, and that makes the good news make sense. The good news being that that is true. We are all in the same boat of being broken, imperfect, riddled with sin and the sickness that it brings, but every single one of us has hope in Christ, that Christ came, that God so loved the world he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That while we were yet sinners, Romans says, he loved us. That's the good news. The good news that both of these men, broken in sin, even if the tax collector would come to his senses and pray more like, or I'm sorry, if the Pharisee would come to his senses and pray more like the tax collector, God would forgive him as well. As prideful and repugnant as this farce of a prayer is, God's mercy would be extended to him as well. Many people are deceived and have been deceived throughout history by embracing one part and forgetting or perverting the other part of the gospel. Oftentimes people emphasize one side or the other or just forget one side or the other. And I want to ask you guys to honestly think with me on this. If I were to ask you which essential part of the gospel, that being the bad news and the good news, which essential part of the gospel message is most likely to be missed in our modern cultural context, I'm talking 2017 America, good news or bad news, which one do you think we are more likely to miss? The good news or the bad news? I would submit to you, based on the conversations that I have and most of what I see, I think we are more prone to not understand the bad news. I think most people 2017 America look more like the Pharisee in this parable than they do the tax collector. And I think most people, 2017 America, aren't missing. They're they're not the person I mentioned that isn't isn't even where the tax collector's at. That doesn't come in the temple because, and I, I mean, I have I have heard people say if I walked into a, a church building, I'd light on fire. So there are those. I'm saying, you know, mixed in there, there are some people that have they just have not yet heard or can't believe the good news of the gospel. They do know that they're broken, but the vast majority of people that I encounter. Most of the resistance I get to uh, the, the, the pure gospel and, and the truth that God has revealed through his word uh, comes in the form of good personism to one degree or another. Most people think they are generally good. Most people know somebody worse than them, or they've read about somebody worse than them, and uh, because of that, they have this, this kind of jacked up thing where they think they can come like the Pharisee, give God a list of the reasons why they're good or at least better than somebody else and that God's going to receive that and count it to them as righteousness. <clears throat> I think more likely, in our context, people miss the bad news. They don't know there's an issue, which is why they shrug their shoulders when someone says, hey, Jesus loves you. Yeah, I've heard that before. So, you know, so what? Yeah, of course he does. You would never say that if you understood the bad news. You would never say that if you really understood how wretched sin is how much of an offense it is to a perfect and holy God, and how guilty you are of it. (laughs) You would never shrug at the simple phrase, Jesus loves you. And yet, in order to avoid offense, we have run around for too long saying, Jesus loves you, without first saying, you are condemned. You are underneath the wrath of God. Without Jesus, you will be eternally separated from the God that made you. That's not his desire. He has expressed specifically what his desire is, but this is where it stands. And the problem is, friends, the good news of the gospel will never make any sense. No one will ever cry out for real, genuine mercy, knowing that they actually need it, like this tax collector, without them first understanding where they stand in relation to God outside of Christ. So I think, I think we're more prone to miss the bad news here and now, but there have been many examples of the opposite error throughout history. Where people have missed or perverted the good news. Where the good news of the gospel was either lost or so distorted it was no longer true. This parable gives us the correct lens with which to view one of these occasions. Uh, One of the more famous times when the good news of the gospel had been lost or perverted to the point. uh, where it 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 no longer represented anything close to what Jesus or any of the rest of the scriptures teaches. In the late 15th and early 16th centuries, the Roman Catholic Church had become the dominant force in Christianity. There were always outliers. There were smaller, lesser-known groups of believers. But the majority of the world, and particularly Europe, who identified themselves in any way with God and his word, were typically a part of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the problem with this is that the church had for centuries been elevating the authority of traditions and of certain men to the level of Scripture, and in some cases, even to the level of Jesus himself. They were teaching things like that priests and the Pope could forgive the sins of people, just like Jesus had the same authority, that men were put, they, men were put into an intermediary role between the people and God, a place that the Bible is clear Jesus alone now occupies. Before I go any further, I want to stick a stick in your spokes because the wheels might be turning. You might be thinking, potentially, oh no, this guy's going to start preaching about church history. Listen, man, I don't want to hear about a bunch of stuff that happened 500 years ago. I need something that applies to my life today. I hope nobody's thinking that, but part of my job is to anticipate those silly thoughts that might dance around in your frontal lobe. So... Uh, Dear friend, I just want you to know that that these things we're going to discuss have crucial application for your life today. I'll give you an example. First of all, let me just say this. Our ingratitude is often fueled, discontentment and ingratitude that we often walk in is fueled by a lack of understanding what it is believers had to persevere through in order to pass this precious truth of the gospel on to us. We need to know something of church history. I think you can have an inordinate focus on it and think that it's going to teach you more than it's supposed to, but most of us are on the other end of the spectrum. We know very little about how it is we hold the precious gem of the gospel today, how it is we have this truth. And and many, many in addition to Christ, have bled and died in that effort, uh, been persecuted, burned at the stake. Lots and lots of uh, painful things have been endured so that we can have uh, what we have today. I've heard, I've heard people complain, not so much here, but other places, I've heard people complain that preachers are always telling people to read their Bibles. Uh, people in this day, people in the time period I'm talking about, were being told not to read it for themselves and just trust everything the preachers said. It wasn't even translated into languages where they could access it themselves. They were told, you're just going to mess it up if you try to get into it yourself. Just listen. We know what it says, and we'll tell you. Here's my question. Which, which of those would you really pre- prefer? How many of you have ever been frustrated about being hammered on again and again by some preacher that loves you and is trying to get you to daily feast upon the bread of life, which is the word of God? You've been frustrated by that. Let's just flip it around. What if today I stood in front of you and said, hey, guess what, guys? I found something in the Bible that says none of you need to read it anymore. You can put those down. You can turn them in, keep them here. You won't need those anymore because now I'm going to read it, interpret it for you, and I'll just tell you what it says. You don't need to think. You don't need to read it. Just trust me. Which would you really prefer? And here's a more important question than what you would prefer. God, I hope you prefer the right one on that. But here's a more important question. Which do you really think represents the heart of God about it? What as, as you've approached God's word, what does it seem to teach? That a few higher holy men should give all of the edicts of God down to everybody and have that kind of uh, intermediary role where nobody can approach the word of God themselves? Does that seem to be what God has taught? It's not. And so the next time you're tempted to be frustrated that somebody's pushing you towards uh, faithful time in God's word, just think about the fact that there were people in my position standing up and telling their people, you don't need a Bible. We got it. We'll tell you what to think about it. We'll tell you how to believe. You can trust us. How stoked would you be on that? Hopefully a little bit of gratitude and contentment is stirred in you to realize what believers went through that have gone before us. The corruption at that time had gotten so bad that popes were issuing something called indulgences, where someone could pay a designated amount of money to the church and this would guarantee forgiveness of sin and escape from any eternal consequences. Uh, These indulgences were used to build big cathedrals and sadly, many times, to line the pockets of church leaders. So there were actually physically pieces of paper, a certificate. You could go, you could pay a certain amount of money, you would be issued this certificate that would either absolve you of sin and any... uh, any concern about uh, eternal consequences. Uh, And and it even went so far as to where you could go and buy one of those for a family member that was already dead and might be suffering in purgatory. You could get them out by paying an indulgence. This this was the environment and the climate in the uh, late 15th, early 16th centuries in Europe. Uh, So these indulgences were being sold to get people out of purgatory which is a false tradition that taught if you didn't suffer enough to pay for your sins in this life, you would suffer in purgatory uh, to kind of work off the rest of your sins before being reunited with Christ for eternity. There was even a detestable little jingle that was well known in that time. This is documented. Uh, It went like this. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. There was preachers standing up preaching that to their people. So that's what was going on. It was in this cultural context, in this environment, that an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther nailing this document to the church door is widely understood to be what kicked off the Protestant Reformation, the 500th anniversary of which is this Tuesday, which is October 31st. It'll be 500 years Exactly since Luther walked up to that castle door and nailed his 95 thesis to it. Uh, this act of defiance uh, by Luther, it has been a bit sensationalized. Um, it, it was a common practice to nail things to that door. So this isn't like uh, you know us marching down to city hall and like nailing our angry. Uh, objections about like parking meter prices or whatever we're upset about on a given day, right? It's 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 not quite like that. This this door people would nail up um, like academic papers, different things they wanted others to review or whatever, and that's kind of the spirit that uh, Luther was doing this in. So the the door was like a bulletin board. It wasn't like uh, you know anything I just described to you. So the 95 thesis had a title. Its title was this: Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Okay. Um, people just used better vocabulary back then, so I'll just decipher that for you. Disputation of the uh, power and efficacy of indulgences. So basically Luther is nailing this on the door to argue the fact that indulgences have no efficacy and they have no power, that they're wrong, they're unbiblical. So that's the main subject matter of this set of 95 95 theses. He's got points, 95 points. And what he was doing is he wanted to argue about it. He wanted somebody to pick this up Other scholars, other Bible teachers, he said, "Here's what I've found in the Bible." You know, let's get after it, right? It's like a 16th century rap battle, Um, but with theology. So, uh, he so he invited other scholars, church leaders to debate. History has no record of that debate ever happening. Instead, uh, people grabbed these theses, and this is right when the printing press was coming in, and so uh, these things got copied and widely distributed. Most people say that wasn't Luther's real intention, but it kind of happened anyways, and that led to Martin Luther being excommunicated from the church uh, and targeted to be murdered as a heretic. So it didn't go well for him, uh, at least from that end of things. The main issue of the Reformation was not indulgences, but what they represented. They were one tradition that showed how far the church had drifted from the pure truth of the gospel, the gospel that Jesus taught, as in the parable we read today, and the gospel his disciples taught both in preaching and in writing the books of the New Testament. You understand what I'm saying? Indulgences wasn't the real issue. That was kind of what kicked things off, but Martin Luther was really arguing against indulgences because indulgences could only exist in an environment where somebody had lost the true and pure gospel. You could only be selling people pieces of paper that would absolve them of their sins if you had lost the fact that grace was free and that it was offered to all men who would repent and trust in Jesus. Now, people in that day So I told you, first of all, I think today we are more prone to miss the bad news because most of us have bought into some kind of self-help, positive self-image gobbledygook, right? And uh, most of us, to some degree, are having to push against that as we really assess what it is it looks like for us to stand before a holy, perfect God. But people in that day obviously understood the bad news, Why do I say that? They were paying tons of money. People were putting all the money they had into getting these indulgences to buy forgiveness from sins. They obviously understood there was an issue. Unfortunately, somebody was teaching them a wretched false way to solve the issue. They were buying these things for themselves. They were buying them for their families. What they had lost in this time was the good news. The good news that justification and salvation come from one place and one place only. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. They had lost it. Indulgences had become a way to do a good work of giving money to the church as a way to receive forgiveness of sins. Which the Bible is crystal clear will never work. Luther was troubled because people would return from the journey to go and buy these indulgences and tell him that they no longer had any need to live in obedience to God or repent when they failed to do so. This is what kind of got stoked him up. He's not known for being the most even-tempered guy in church history either, and so this kind of stuff fired him up. Uh, I, I can relate to him in that way, um, maybe not being the most even-tempered cat out there, uh, but he was real frustrated by this. Um. People were telling him, I don't don't think it matters what I do. I I bought this indulgence. The Pope signed this thing right here. I'm good. Doesn't matter what I do. I don't need to repent. And this is why the first of his 95 Theses starts with this. This is the first point he makes. He says, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying repent, intended that the whole life of his believers on earth should be a constant penance. And he doesn't mean in the way that we're not trusting in the forgiveness that comes in Christ, but that we are called to constantly be aware of the places where we fall short of the glory of God and to come continually as we do week after week here, as I hope you do day after day in your time with Jesus. We are supposed to come and confess our sins. We're supposed to be honest about where we're struggling and trust that he is faithful and just to forgive us. Repentance should be a daily, minute by minute part of the Christian life. This was the first of Martin Luther's 95 theses. His point is you're not buying a piece of paper or doing any other thing that gets you out of that vibrant part of relationship with the Lord. Letting the Holy Spirit bring conviction that you respond to humbly, setting those things down, and trusting Jesus to forgive. We have to daily, friends, by the minute, interact with the grace of God. I think this is part of why the book of Thessalonians says to pray without ceasing. Someone's like, what does that mean? I gotta be praying all the time? Well, if, like, if we're really aware of like, where we're at <laughs> as it pertains to our standing with God, as it pertains to like how much of our thought life and or actions are, are really reflecting the glory of God on a day-to-day basis, we probably wouldn't need a verse telling us to be praying without ceasing. It would just kind of happen, right? And I'm not, about, uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about condemnation. See, some of you hear what I'm saying. You're like, you should be repenting all the time. Man, that sounds terrible, but it's only if you think of repentance as like going to the principal's office to get a spanking back when they did that um, and children behaved. Uh, just kidding. Honestly, I don't think I would. I'm kind of glad that stopped because if some principal spanked my kid too hard, then I'd be fighting the principal and, you know, it'd be a bad situation. So, um, but my point is that it, that's, that's not what it's like. The book of 1 John tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we will come and confess, that every single time we come offering all of our frailties and failures and sins to the master, what he's promised to do is to take those, take them away from us, off our hands, and then he's going to give us some things in return. We come with with the tattered rags that we've earned for ourselves. He, He gently takes those off. He takes the gleaming, white, radiant, perfect robes of Christ that only he earned, and he drapes those across your shoulders. He, you come in dirty, filthy, overcome, broken in sin. You leave out forgiven, made holy, equipped with the grace of God to go and to fight again. It's not a bad experience. It's a beautiful one. It's not something that we should run from. It's something we should run to. It's a gracious privilege. Do you understand that God doesn't owe you that? Do you understand he could have been like any other deity that would have demanded that you work all of your life to try to pay back. That, that's, Christianity is like every other religion. No, it's not. Find me one that says, if you will trust that your God took on flesh, lived a perfect life, paid the only sacrifice it's ever going to take and ever was going to work for your sins and all you have to do is believe him and trust him in that in order to be saved and reconciled to him, find me another system that comes anywhere near that kind of good news. Any other one you find is going to have a list of stuff. And it's going to probably sound a lot like buying indulgences. To try to get to the point where you can be forgiven in a reconciled relationship with God. That's not how it works. Praise be to God for that. Friends, I think it's important to note that Martin Luther never intended a split from the church. That wasn't what he was doing in coming to nail the 95 Theses to the door. He simply wanted to challenge traditions that had arisen Which were contrary to the scriptures. However, when men like the Pharisee in the parable have power and think they are right, they look down upon anyone who disagrees with or challenges their positions. And so the church did not respond well. Martin Luther was also by no means a picture of Christian perfection. I mentioned this to some degree. He was known for having a sharp tongue uh, and for being very harsh with his own critics. Uh, and that's among other faults. I would just submit to you that, however, a quick scan of the Bible will reveal God using sinful screw-ups like Abraham, David, Peter, Paul to accomplish his purposes. And so Luther's imperfections should really come at no surprise. And ultimately, people, people oftentimes will try to attack uh, certain things throughout history or say, say the implications of how God used Luther to kind of reopen The eyes of many people to the truth of the gospel, they'll start to point at his personal character flaws as an argument against whether or not God used him in his day uh, to do what he did, whether or not it was a legitimate move of God that the Reformation sprung forth out of what is rightly referred to as the Dark Ages, right? Up to this point, it was dark. And it got so dark that popes were teaching the the priests in, in, in all the different places, they were teaching them specifically how to how to teach these indulgences in order to get more people to do it. How to really assure people and get them stoked on the idea that if they can just come up with this many coins to buy this thing, that that's really going to help them. And listen, I know they had cathedrals to build and they had stuff to do, but uh, if God wants a cathedral built, he'll provide the money for it. You won't have to lie to his people to get it. However, my point is in all that, that... uh, I'm greatly encouraged that God used men like Abraham, David, Peter, Paul, Martin Luther, broken guys that didn't have it all together. Definitely, you could just see it. there's like glaring, obvious examples that they are not perfect. The reality is, if God was going to wait for perfect people in order to use them to accomplish his will, how long would he be waiting? Forever, right? And if you're sitting there going, well, if you would have just waited till I came along, uh, you're the Pharisee in the parable. (laughs) And you should repent. Because man, that attitude will take you to hell. And I said that with a smile on my face, but I'm so serious about it. The quickest thing that will take you to hell will be thinking like that Pharisee in that story. That was Jesus' point. One man left justified, one didn't. And if that guy stayed where he was at, The grace of God would not be upon him. It's not going to happen. And grace is what we need, friends. I'm thankful God uses imperfect people to accomplish his will. It means you and me can be in the game. This controversy sparked renewal of and return to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that would align with what Jesus taught about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um... This renewal is known as the Reformation, and the Reformation became known for a set of five slogans that represented the need for a return to biblical truth and conviction. These five slogans were Latin phrases known as the five solas. And I'm going to briefly go through those with you. Uh, I think it would probably be advisable for you. I, I don't care necessarily if you remember the Latin, but the principles that guided this reformation back to the pure, true gospel, uh, the one that Jesus preached, the one that his disciples espoused. Understanding these guiding principles, I think, would be helpful for you because we are just, uh, we have just as much potential to be labeled by future generations as a, as a dark ages by missing the bad news of the gospel as they were for missing the good news of the gospel. Do you understand that? People could look back at our time and say, Man, every single one of them, all of them were like that, ta- that uh, Pharisee in the, in the parable. All of them thought they were awesome. None of them really understood the mercy and grace of Christ was needed for every human. These five solas will help us and be kind of guide rails. And uh, these, are, these are at least principles we should be able to understand and be able to talk about. So, what are the five solas? They are sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. What does that teach? That teaches that the Bible alone is our highest authority. I'm going to expound on these a little bit more. I'm going to run all, through all of them, and I'm going to give you guys some scriptural backing for each one. Why did the Reformers have these principles? Um, and it, it makes sense when you, I gave you some of the background and the history so you can understand what they were responding to. Uh, some of these may seem like givens to us, but you've got to remember there was a time when these things weren't givens. Um, and, and sometimes I think we overassume how much of a given it is in our day. Uh, maybe it is within the household of God, hopefully, uh, but outside, uh, a lot of these things aren't, aren't believed. So, sola scriptura, scripture alone, is the Bible alone is our highest authority. We'll come back and give a little bit more uh, shape to that. Sola fide is faith alone. That teaches that we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. The third is sola gratia which is we are saved by the grace of God alone. Sola gratia is grace alone. Solus Christus is Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. The last and fifth sola is sola deo gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone is the basic premise of that sola. All right, so I'm going to work through these. It won't take long. And uh, hopefully this is something you can look into more. This just maybe makes you aware of these or uh, reminds you of them or uh, reinforces the importance of these guiding principles that were a part of the Reformation. If the Reformation hadn't happened, you would likely be sitting here listening to me talk in Latin and uh, you wouldn't have a Bible and you wouldn't believe it was important to read it. You would probably not have a personal relationship with Christ or anybody encouraging you to. And uh, we probably have a box in the back to collect money so that I could write you a receipt at the end to tell you that you weren't going to hell. Are you thankful for the Reformation? I am. I'm thankful for the soulless. I want some application for my life today. Friend, you're not getting any more application than this right here. The very faith upon which we stand absolutely is anchored in the fact that men and women stood, fought, and died for the truth of the gospel. Sola Scriptura, what is that? So what that means is that the, the, the Scriptures are our ultimate and trustworthy authority for faith and practice. This doesn't mean that the Bible is the only place where truth is found. That's an important distinction. There are those, and I just, listen, they're probably Christians, so I love them, but they're goofy because they'll say, they'll say not Sola Scriptura, they'll say Solo Scriptura. They will teach that the Bible is the only place we should ever get information from. <laughs> it's like... Guys, if I have to fix my 1993 Saturn view, I'm not finding that in Hebrews, okay? I need a Haynes manual for a Saturn, right? Uh, <laughs> there's going to be other knowledge. Thankfully, God has, through common grace, revealed medical, scientific, all kinds of other forms of knowledge. But what it, So what does it mean? It does mean that everything else we learn about God and his world... All other authorities, they need to be interpreted in light of Scripture. So any other information that we get, any other even authoritative things, they come in submission to and up underneath what the Bible says. And so if something else in trying to tell you, uh, teach you some kind of knowledge or give you some kind of information is contrary to God's Word, God's Word always trumps that. It is the supreme and highest authority. And anything that would counter that has to submit to it. Sola Scriptura does believe that. And that is right. The Bible gives us everything we need for our theology, our understanding of who God is, how he relates to us, and how we should relate to him. Every word of the 66 books of the Bible is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also helps us to understand and obey the scriptures. This is a short encompassing of what the the principle or the the sola of sola scriptura stands for. Uh, Does the Bible support it? 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Well, you're using the Bible to prove that the Bible says that. Well, yes. At some point, uh, you're either going to trust in faith that the Bible is a self-authenticating book that proves it has divine authorship, or you're not going to believe that. Well, why do you believe that? Well, I believe that because if you start in Genesis 1 and just read and pay attention and the Holy Spirit helps you, you're going to be able to trace the crimson thread of the gospel from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. You're going to see that this compilation of 66 books written by 40 authors over the span of 1,500 years in three different languages tells one story. You're going to go to Isaiah and you're going to see him prophesy crucifixion happening to the Savior 700 years before the Savior is born and several hundred years before crucifixion is even invented. You're going to see the foreshadow of Abraham taking his son Isaac up a hill with wood on his back to sacrifice him. God staying his hand and providing a sacrifice instead. You're going to see the foreshadowing of Joseph being put in the position, put down into the pit but then raised up by God to be the savior of his people that they would not perish. You're going to see the foreshadowing of Moses being trained as a shepherd and then sent to lead the exodus with the Passover, with the blood of the lamb over the doorpost thousands of years before Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene. If you pay attention, you're going to understand that there is too much to just chalk it up to coincidence or that some wise old sages put this thing together to trick everybody. At some point, that opinion becomes the foolish one that takes faith. If you take the Bible for what it says, you understand the narrative goes all the way through. You see, it's a self authenticating document. You see that this book proves, in and of itself, if you take it for what it says by faith, you're willing to trust it, you'll see. God was involved in this thing; mere men couldn't have come up with this. The difference between sola scriptura and solo scriptura. I want to just make this clear. I, I kind of did with the Haynes manual thing, but let, let's say you want to, if you want to bake a pumpkin pie. Okay, it's getting to that time of season, that time of the year. If <laughs> if you go to your Bible to find the recipe for a pumpkin pie you're going to be super frustrated. I've been through it a few times. There's no recipe for pumpkin pie in there. If you try to pull some stuff out of the Old Testament, you're going to come up with maybe like a mincemeat pie like my friends in New Zealand eat, but even that is going to be rough. So you're not going to find the recipe for a pumpkin pie. So you're going to have to get a cookbook. So let's say you jump on Amazon because no one goes to the store anymore. You jump on Amazon and you find you a cookbook. And it says, oh, th- this this has the recipe for the best pumpkin pies in the world. And so you, you order the cookbook. Uh, you get it on Prime because we don't, we don't wait, right? So it's it's there, uh, drone dropped in like 17 minutes. So, okay, now I've got my cookbook. You open it up to the pumpkin pie recipe. You're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. And then, But at th- th- the end of the recipe, it says, now, here's... If you follow all these instructions, if you don't do this last thing, it will not work. So what you need to do is take some of that pumpkin spice that you're going to use in this pumpkin, you need to to put it in a little incense burner, you need to light that pumpkin spice on fire, and as that that smoke and aroma rises, you need to say a prayer to the pumpkin pie God that this pie is going to turn out right. If you don't do this, this pumpkin pie will not turn out right, it'll be disgusting. Now you have an issue, right, because now this cookbook that has good information about how to make a pumpkin pie, is now encouraging you to worship the pumpkin pie god in order to get the thing that you want. And so now this cookbook has to come, you're like, where are you ordering cookbooks from, buddy? Listen, it's called an analogy, okay? <laughs> Ever heard of it? Okay? I know it's a dumb analogy, but I'm trying, to, I'm trying to show you that now the cookbook was fine until it said, do something that disobeys God. Then the cookbook gets closed, all the pumpkin pie ingredients go in the garbage. We're not having pumpkin pie now right? Because the word of God trumps what that cookbook said. Either that or I'm just not going to burn the pumpkin spice because I realize whoever wrote that's a kook and I'm just going to make it and it's going to be fine, right? The the cookbook submits to the authority of the scriptures, but I can't go get the pumpkin pie recipe from the Bible. You see how we end up, if if you understand all that, you end up not being weird, but still honoring the authority of the scriptures. The, The scriptures are the high authority. Everything else submits to it. All right, uh, I'm going to expound on sola fide and sola gratia together, uh, and that's because they're really very closely intertwined, and I'm going to give you the same scriptural support for both, so, uh, and, and they are really, really close together. So sola fide, sola gratia, that's faith alone and grace alone as it pertains to salvation. We are saved solely through faith in Jesus Christ because of God's grace and Christ's merit alone. We are not saved by our merits or declared righteous by our good works, God grants salvation not because of the good things we do and despite our sin. God graciously preserves us and keeps us. When we are faithless, he is still faithful. We can only stand before God by his grace as he mercifully gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ and gives him the consequences of our sin. Jesus' life of perfect righteousness is counted as ours And our record of sin and failures were counted to Jesus when he died on the cross. That is a quick summary of what sola fide, sola gratia teach. By faith alone and grace alone are we saved. Is it biblical? Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. I would say yes. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a real good balanced view of it right there. Solus Christus, or Christ alone. What is that? Why is that a part of the reformation and the shaping of what it, uh, what it means to, to serve God? Because God is holy and all humans are sinful... No religious rituals or good works could ever mediate between us and God. Only through God's gracious self-revelation in Jesus do we come to a saving and transforming knowledge of God. It's only through one way. Is that biblical? Colossians 1 speaks of Jesus this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both In the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything." For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Christ alone. That's where our hope is found. Peter preached this in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. It's only because of his grace and mercy. The fifth and final sola is sola deo gloria. That means the glory belongs to God alone. God's glory, friends, hear me. God's glory is the central motivation for salvation not improving the lives of people. I'm going to be quiet for a minute and let you think about that. It's real important. God's glory is the central motivation for salvation, not improving the lives of people. Okay? Now, some people would just leave you there. And it's okay to do that. I'm going to say this, though. However, when God is glorified, it stirs our love and affection for him, which leads us to occupy the vocation for which we were created, which is to love and enjoy God forever. Do you understand that? I think a lot of people... The Bible does say that that, that God is about His glory. God created for His glory. God has been gracious to us for His glory. He has saved us for His glory. All of these things are to the glorious praise of His excellencies forever. Amen. However... Ultimately, we, we, need, we need to apply that thinking, I think, more robustly to how it is he deals with us. Why is it he's so concerned with his glory for us? Is God insecure? Is God need the affirmation and praise of men? He doesn't. So what's he doing? What has he revealed is his overall big goal? What has he said he's he's doing? What what is that crimson thread of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation? What does it reveal about the character of God, the plan of God, and what it is he's about? Well, if before the foundations of the world, do you understand? If before the world was made, the Lamb of God was already slain, that means God knew exactly everything that was going to go down, including our sin, including what it would cost him before he ever made us. And he went ahead with it. He didn't get surprised in Genesis 2 and 3 and go, whoa, we got to come up with a plan. He knew exactly what was going to go on. And yet, the end goal that he has clearly told us is what he's about. That, that the reason Peter says that he's not slow is some count slowness. He's patient, wishing that none should perish. God has been about one thing from the beginning as it pertains to us, and that's us and him forever. When he glorifies himself... Our proper response to that is to be stirred with affection and love for him. And when we're stirred with affection and love for him, it actually, that is where the most joy for us is found. When we're stirred with an affection and love for this glorious God that has revealed himself in so many glorious ways, when our affection and love is stirred for him, that causes us to occupy the vocation that we were created for, which is to love and enjoy God forever. Let me say this another way. God created us for a job to know him, love him, obey him, and enjoy him. And it brings him glory when we do our job instead of trying to do his. Sola Deo Gloria, all glory to God alone. That's the fifth sola, the fifth guiding principle, where these church fathers coming out of years and years of of losing the good news of the gospel grabbed hold of it again by hope And put their lives on the line so that you and I today, and friends, that's part of. Some of you probably just wonder if there's something wrong with me mentally sometimes when I'm, I'm. You you can probably see a visceral frustration when the gospel is proclaimed and it 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 falls upon kind of a a, a, like a dusty religious crowd, right? Like I don't when 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 we really understand, (laughs) we shouldn't need the Reformation and all that it cost those church fathers to pass the gospel on to us, we can just back it up to the cross, understanding what it cost Christ, and, and, and the gospel shouldn't be able to hit our ears without an incredible love and affection being stirred inside of us that would lead to joy and allegiance and worship for Jesus. But when we think about the story went on from there, it went on from the cross. The cross wasn't the last sacrifice paid for you to be able to sit here today and hear faithfully, both the good news and the bad news. If you're able to sit here today and have the full revelation of God's word at your fingertips, and yet what do we do with it half the time? We stick it on the shelf in preference to some other useless form of entertainment, whatever else has caught our eye. I'm not saying that what God has called us to is to only ever read Scripture I told you earlier, make a pumpkin pie, right? There's other stuff to do and you can engage in this culture and you should engage in this culture and you should engage in activities and even forms of entertainment you should do these things but it should always in eternal perspective all those things should be ran through the grid of the fact that i have been saved by a perfect holy god that i and i didn't deserve it his mercy and grace has been shed upon me and he and because he's done that he has enlisted me then to now be a light in this world and to share with others the fact that they don't have to live in darkness so do the sports man go to the sports thing Amen. But go as an ambassador of Christ. Watch some TV. Great. Hallelujah. But pay attention to the subversive messages in there and understand how it is your culture is being taught. Pay attention and don't buy it yourself. Make the information coming to you through that screen run through this and submit to its truthful authority. And ask yourself the question, why, before you do anything Because that fifth and final solo is true. Our whole chief end as humans is to bring glory to God. And so I should be asking myself, with every single way I spend the resources of time and energy that God has given me, finances, whatever it is he's blessed me with, I should be asking why, what purpose does this have? When I play with my kids, when I'm pouring into them and spending time with them, I'm thinking about the fact, why? Why would I do this? And there's, a, there's a whole world out there that's not yet heard the gospel. Why would I sit in here with my house and play with my children on the rug? Why would I do that? Well, because they also need to know the gospel. And part of the way they're going to understand that God's a good father is if I do the best I can, yeah, it's going to be a broken, messed up attempt and there's going to have to be grace and forgiveness showered upon the whole thing. I'm going to have to teach them that too. However, if I'm willing to spend time with them and invest in them and show them that I love them, it may not be as hard as it is for some of us for them to see God as a good father that they can trust. There's a purpose when I'm rolling on the rug with them kids. When I could be doing something else. I could be running out, preaching the gospel in the middle of the street, and I should do that more. I should be in the streets more than I am. I should be trying to grab people by the shoulders more than I am, looking in their eyes and say, you are lost without Christ and you need him. Do you believe that? But sometimes I need to stop and I need to just look over at my wife and I need to spend time investing in her. Because when I do that, I'm preaching the gospel to her by showing her what it is to be a husband that loves her like Christ. Every single, my point is, I'm, just, I'm, I'm talking about the mundane things of life that sometimes just become this rut that we get into, and we just do them because we do them. Every single one of those things, friends, ties to, should, to the glory of God. I think you're a little bit extreme, buddy. Okay? Okay? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, or whatever you do, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we asked a few more whys, I think we'd struggle with less sin, I think we'd waste less time, and I think our lives would reflect the glory of God much more. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I just wanted to read it one more time in case the vocal change woke somebody up. I just wanted to make sure they heard that. And I say amen. Friend, if you're sitting there thinking, man, my whole life has to bring glory to God, that sounds like a drag you're missing something. Come see me. Come talk, talk to somebody, Please. Let us work with you on this until you see living a life for the glory of God as your chief end and the source of most possible joy for you. Until that excites you, keep thinking about it. Keep praying about it. Keep submitting it to the Father. If you think I just look like an overexcited guy that drank too much coffee right now and you're like, I don't know what he's on about, promise, I trust you. This is is a subdued reaction to what we're talking about right now. This does not nearly do justice to the principle that we're discussing right now. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Friends, that's my prayer for you. Every day before my kids go to school, I grab their hands and I pray that over this church. That our church family, every single one of them, wherever they are today, they would reflect the glory of God. That they would be good, faithful missionaries. Sharing with their life and words the truth of this gospel. So whether you're praying it for yourself or not, I'm praying that for you every day. Me and my family are praying that for you. And may it be so. In the name of Jesus, it's my great hope. And I hope it's yours. Because if it is, there's power in that unity. If we'll get together and hope the same thing, we'll see it. By God's grace and mercy alone. May we never be so deceived that we would boast of our achievements towards God and think it counts as prayer. May we embrace the bad news that we, like the tax collector, have no hope apart from the mercy of God. And may we bring glory to God with every breath as we walk in the joy of our undeserved relationship with Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you, first of all, for this parable. We thank you for the deep and profound truth that it teaches us. It's deep and profound, but it's simple at the very same moment, and yet we, we struggle to grasp it very often, Lord. Some of us, we struggle to one side, and we, we would be tempted to bring you a list of achievements and convince you we're worthy of being justified. Some of us, Lord, we think too often on the good things we do and the bad things we avoid, When it comes to the question of are we justified before you, God, please drive every ounce of sinful pride that would lead us towards those thought patterns. God, just drive it away from us by the power of your spirit. Cleanse us, Lord. Be the refining fire you promised to be in Malachi and purge us of those things. Lord Jesus, some of us struggle on the other side. Some of us are like that tax collector standing in the back. Some of us can't even get the words out. Some of us can't even get to the point of beating our chest and pleading for your mercy. Some of us don't even feel like we have the right to ask you for anything. Lord, help us to trust in what you've said that any, whosoever will come, who will acknowledge their need for you, that you'll respond. May we walk in that beautiful grace, God. May we receive the joy that comes in it. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the truth that was recovered in the Reformation, I thank you that the pure, true gospel, the light of the gospel, was unleashed in Europe, that it spread, ended up in the Americas, and that today we stand, understanding that there's bad news, that yes, we're sinners, but there's good news, there's hope in Christ, that we have the truth of the gospel, that we have your word in a language we can understand, that we, we can read it and see that we are invited to feast upon it as daily bread to drink deep of the well of beauty that it supplies like living water. Thank you for your word. God, please forgive our sin of familiarity. Forgive those of us that have six, seven Bibles spread around on the shelf and go days and maybe weeks without picking one up. Lord, forgive our discontentment and ingratitude. Help us to remember what it's cost not only Christ but so many others for us to have the hope we have today. Lord, I know that you hold your people accountable to the degree that they have resources to obey you. And so we stand in a place today. We have the fullness of the truth of your gospel. We have your word. We have technology that allows us to communicate in ways that nobody else ever has. We have the ability to travel in ways that nobody else ever has. We have no excuse not to have the beautiful truth of your gospel flung to the four corners of this world. But not just that, Lord. We have no excuse not to share the gospel with the neighbor living next door. The other parents at the sport event. Whatever it is, whatever we're doing, the people at the grocery store. God, I ask you to set us on fire for the pure, beautiful truth of your gospel. May we be overcome and overwhelmed and overflowing with the joy that comes in walking in the vocation, the job that you made us for which is to know you and love you and obey you and serve you forever. Lord, And forgive us for every single time we've tried to do your job. You're the only one that can do that. You're the only God. We joyfully submit underneath the might of your hand. We are your sheep. You are the shepherd. We love you. We worship you. Please help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio.